Steve Johnson, if you don't know him, uh, has been at Church of Rain for a long time. Uh, he runs our Bible college, uh, which I think a number of people from Woodstock actually attend on a regular basis, um, which is incredible and so life-giving and um, he's so knowledgeable and I think presents a lot of his knowledge extremely well and I think has been one of the people that's been with us on our journey uh, of Woodstock. So Steve, thanks for your commitment to us and your availability to us to encourage us and teach us and lead us in that. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's an honor to have Steve. Okay? Um, so let's, let's pray um, and thank the Lord for that. Jesus, thank you so much for uh, Stephen and just his, um, his incredible study and knowledge of your word. Uh, thank you for uh, his humility whilst having that. Um, and thank you, Lord, that your spirit is on him and has anointed him to uh, preach your gospel with authority, with power, with clarity, uh, with wisdom. Um, so we thank you just, Lord, for uh, the blessing that he is to this church. Thank you that you give gifts in people uh, to, to the churches, Lord, and, and thank you that Steve is one of those. Uh, so we just uh, honor you, Lord, for your work in him, and, and we, we say that we are, we are ready to hear from you today. Amen. 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 Thank you, Ross. Well, guys, thanks for having me back. Lovely to be here. Um, is that going to stay on? Okay. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I don't want to mess up your background vibe, you know. <clears throat> so, back in Woodstock, uh, how's the year been? Hard? Good? Uh, Bit of both? Okay. <laughs> Well done for persisting through the year, and we pray that the Lord will bless you guys next year. Yeah, so well done, guys. Um, so, yeah, Ross gave me a few options, and uh, I'm going to take the first of those. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, so if you want to go there with me. Yeah, so this is uh, an intriguing uh, passage of scripture. We're heading into the Christmas season, and we're going to be celebrating that most miraculous of all births. In fact, it's uh, it's the greatest miracle ever to have taken place, the the, the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, why so? Not just because it was a virgin birth, and it was historical fact. Um, but it, because in the, in the birth of Jesus, the infinite, transcendent God, the God who lives outside of space and time itself, the, the God who created space and time, who's not bound by space and time, he lives outside of them. He entered space and time and was born into a human body. Uh, that is the ultimate in a supernatural event because it is the author of all that is supernatural. It's supernaturality itself, God Himself, entering the most natural thing, a human baby, human body. So, technically speaking, it is the greatest miracle that ever took place the virgin birth of God Himself into the world. But what's going on there? What's going on in that little stable and the and the manger and the swaddling clothes and the things we've always sung about in the hymns. What's, what's happening there? 
And we, we get a bit of the meaning of it from Isaiah chapter 9. So let's begin from the first verse, just to get the context of it. I, I want us to focus on verse 6. You know the verse, for unto us a child is born. But let's not rush ahead yet. There's some context there. Uh, Nevertheless, says Isaiah, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, so just need to stop there for a second. So at first, God lightly esteemed, didn't have much esteem for, looked down upon, was not pleased with, um, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Um, Under Tiglath-Pileser, who was a Syrian king, um, that land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which was in the north, when the Syrians would march south to take the land, they came from the north and they would get to that, that region first. Um, and under Tiglath Pillars, you read of that in Second Kings chapter 15, um, they marched through that area, devastated it, many people were taken captive. And then afterwards, more heavily oppressed her, um, whatever it was, how many years later in in 722, there was an even greater um, oppressing of that northern territory of Israel when in fact the whole northern kingdom was taken captive once and for all and have never returned to this day. The southern kingdom did return to Jerusalem and Judah, but the northern kingdom has never been returned. Um, That was under Shalmaneser, whatever it was, a couple of hundred years or a hundred years, whatever it was afterwards. And that's what Isaiah is now looking into the future. He's seeing, he's seeing the, the march of these armies through Zebulun and Naphtali, that area of Galilee in the north, where, man, these guys were oppressed and their, and their children were killed and their women were ravished and they were taken captive. And eventually, in 722, he more heavily oppressed them. Why? Because they had turned to idols. They had turned their backs on God, and so God was judging them. First lightly, and then later even more heavily. That's what he's talking about. And yet, there is this prophecy that the gloom, the gloom which was on that geographic region, will not be upon her as it was in those two events. The people who walked in darkness, that's a great description of the people who lived in that area. That for hundreds of years, all they knew was hardship and oppression and bloodshed and suppression. But the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, literally death was, was casting its shadow over them daily. They could die daily. And yet... Over this land where the shadow of death was casting its shadow upon them, a light has shined. An amazing prophecy. And then there's this commentary in the next few verses, verses 3 to 5, of how joy and delight and singing and um, 
freedom from the oppressor would come to that region. As in the day of Midian, David says, um, uh, Isaiah says. So if you remember what happened with Midian, this was Gideon in the book of, Judge, uh, your book of Judges, where um, the Midianites are like uh, a great plague of locusts that have come into the land. They cover the land. And there's Gideon, you know, threshing his wheat in the wine press where there's no wind to thresh wheat because he's terrified. And the angel of the Lord says... God has chosen you to deliver the nation of Israel. And what happens? He, he, he gathers an army. God says, your army's too big. It's going to be a miraculous deliverance. It's, when it happens, you are going to know it was me. And he whittles that army down, you know, take them down to the river, see how they drink, that whole thing. And the, at the, in the end, there's only 300 people with Gideon. And Gideon goes down into the Midianite camp at night and he hears a dream the one man had about a, a, a loaf of barley wheat that rolled down the hill and knocked over a tent. And, and he hears these Midianite men talking, this is the sword of Gideon, God has delivered. And he realizes, man, even these people know God has delivered them into my hands. He takes his 300 men and he wins a victory that was, to say the least, miraculous and went down in history as a delivering victory for God's people. Now, here Isaiah looks at the kind of victory that is going to liberate the people in this the Zebulun and Aphtali, Galilee area in the north, the kind of victory is going to be that kind of victory. It's going to be so miraculous that they will know God has done it. As in the day of Midian. Um, and even though the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning fuel and fire, that bloodshed will come to an end in this region. There will be peace and victory. A light has shined. Now, now how, why? What is this? What is this victory? What has brought deliverance, like in the day of Midian, to the Israelites, to God's people, particularly these who live in Galilee of the Gentiles? What, what is it that has, has brought this victory? And, and Isaiah is looking 700 years into the future, and he's seeing this prophetically, and he says, let me tell you about this great victory in the land of Galilee. I don't understand it all, but I can tell you this, unto us a child is born. That's what it's about. A child will be born in Galilee who will change everything. It's, it's awesome. A child will be born. What kind of victory is this? A little child being born. And this child grows up in Galilee, grows up in Nazareth. His name was Jesus Christ. This is the greatest story that's ever been told. There has never been a story like this. The gospel story, it's been unfolding for thousands of years. And the genius of God is displayed in it. Unto us a child is born. And unto us a son is given. He's not just a child, he is a male child. And he's a son of a father. Remember that. He's the son of a father. Are we going to get to why that is significant in a second? He's a son. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. What? This 
child, this male-born child, who will bring light into Galilee, will be God Himself. That's what it says. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. He will be the Prince of Peace. He will bring peace to people who had only known hardship and defeat. He will bring peace. I want to stop there for a second, then we'll dig into verse 7 after this. First thing I, I want you to realize is the significance of Jesus being a man. He came as a human being. He was born into a human body that is significant. He was a man, 100% human. Unto us a child is born. Now why is that significant? Well, you go right back to the beginning of time. Adam and Eve fall in the garden. They fall into sin. They rebel against God. And at that time, God makes a promise. You know the promise, Genesis 3.15. He's speaking to Satan. He says, And I will put enmity between you, your seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Two lines. Those who are elect, those who are saved, and those who are not. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And yet, this word seed in, in Hebrew, it's a bit like English. It's, like, it's a collective noun. It can be singular. It can be plural. And in fact, the, throughout the Bible, we, we have the, the play on, on, on this word. That the seed of the woman who then comes through Abraham is often called the seed of Abraham. Yes, it's, it's, it's a group of people, the church in the end. And yet, it terminates on a single individual. There is a seed, not seeds, says Paul. An individual person will be born into this world. And that's why the singular pronoun is now used. He said, and he, singular, the seed of the woman, he, says God to Eve, will bruise your head, Satan, and you will bruise his heel. A picture of Jesus on the cross. They used to put a little piece of wood on the cross where to, to, to lift yourself up, to open your diaphragm so you could breathe, because that's how you died when you were crucified. You suffocated to death. As all of your, as your limbs dislocated and, your, and you couldn't push yourself up anymore on your, on your feet, you slowly, it crushes the diaphragm and you would suffocate to death. The, the, the oxygen flow to the blood would eventually decrease, 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 decrease. The most incredibly torturous way to die. And there's this little block of wood that you'd push yourself up on. And, and here's this prophecy of, of, of Satan. This human-born seed of the woman who will undo everything you have done in causing man to fall and bring the whole of creation into corruption in sin. There is one who will undo what you have done. He will crush your head. He will kill you. In the process, your bruises heal. It cost Jesus something to bring victory to us. So there's the seed promised. A human-born Savior. A seed of the woman. Someone will be born from the line of Eve. One day, who will undo what you have done? Satan. 
And here Isaiah now begins to say, For unto us a child is born. The one that God promised thousands of years ago in the garden. He's going to be born to us, the Jews, says Isaiah. He will be born a Jew. Then Genesis 22, um, you know the story, Abraham, ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, though Abraham knew it was through his seed, through his line, his genealogy, that the seed of the woman that was promised in the Garden of Eden, Abraham understood that he had been chosen of all the people on the earth for this this family to run through him, that through him this child would be born. He knew it. The Bible says, Abraham, the gospel was preached to Abraham and he knew it, he understood it, and he believed it. He knew God has chosen me for this this human-born Savior to come. And yet, and already the promise had been, no, it's not going to be through Ishmael, your, your, your one son. It's going to be through the son of promise, the one that I promised to you through Sarah. His name is Isaac. It's going to be through him that the Savior is eventually born. And yet, Abraham, he was so full of faith and so obedient to God when God said, I want you to kill Isaac. Abraham understood this. If I kill Isaac, the world cannot be saved. He knew that. If I kill Isaac, I cannot be saved. Because the one promised to Eve, that seed of the woman, will be born through Isaac. He has, is yet to be born, however many hundreds of years from now. I don't know when he's going to be born, but I know one day he will be born and he will undo what Adam did and through that I will be saved. And yet he was willing to kill Isaac. That's why God was so pleased with Abraham. You know why? Because in the book of Hebrews it says, Abraham believed in his heart that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he killed him. That's how sure Abraham was in the promise of that promised son who would one day be born. See, it was faith in the gospel that caused Abraham to want to be willing to kill Isaac. It was faith in the gospel. And because of that, you, you see God steps in at the last moment, spares Isaac's life, provides a, a ram, a sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice, which is what Jesus is for us on the cross. And he says, because you have done this, Make some promises. Then he says, and through your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Forgiveness of sins will come to every nation and the gift of the Holy Spirit will be given to every na- people in every nation of this world. Those are the two things that, that the New Testament tells us are the blessings of Abraham. Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit that changes us. Through you, Abraham, through your seed, those things will come. Now, here we are in South Africa, black, white, English, Afrikaans. We are from, not from the Jews. I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile, as I guess most of you in this room are too. And yet here we are this morning, and we are the fulfillment of this prophecy. We are from the nations of the earth and we have received the blessing of Abraham. We've received forgiveness of sins. We've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this seed through Abraham, um, 
who's this, who, who will he be? What will he be like? And there were these prophecies that started being made within the Jewish nation. Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses says to the people, now this is several hundred years after Abraham, four, five hundred years later, he says uh, to the people, God will raise up for you a prophet, capital P, like me. Not just a prophet who speaks the words of God. No, like me. What kind of prophet was Abraham? He was a prophet who acted also as a priest. He prayed for the people. He made sacrifices for the people. And a king. He was the ruler of God's people. He was their, he was their judicial head. He was their sort of um, military commander. This is the kind of prophet that God will raise up for you one day. He will be prophet, priest, and king over the nation. And him you must hear. Says so, so, so it starts get, getting colored in. As you, as you continue along the story, you start to learn more and more about this promised seed, this male-born child who will save the world. And here now Isaiah, just before the fall of, um, of, of the, the kingdoms, both Israel and Judah would both shortly fall. Here he is saying, that God will send a male-born child. And, and who will this child be? He, see, he's filling in the color a bit more. He's like, what? who will he be? Well, he will be wonderful. He'll be a counselor. Be a counselor for you. He will lead you. He will give you counsel if you seek him. He's a counselor. He, God speaks. He leads. He has a plan for you. He'll be a counselor. He'll be mighty God. Wow, so this... This human-born seed will be God Himself. It's getting colored in. And uh, He's both God and man. In, in Daniel chapter 7, there's this amazing prophecy. Now Daniel is several hundred years later, after Isaiah, and he now fills it in a bit more. And he sees this divine figure. Clearly it's divine. This, this, this figure, this person he sees is God. Coming on the clouds. And the name of this figure, says Daniel, is the Son of Man. See, he's the Son of Man, but he's, but he's divine. He's, he's man and he's God. And he's coming on the clouds. And to him was given authority and a kingdom, says Daniel. <clears throat> and then Isaiah, later on, Isaiah 53, he, he talks about the work, the, the astounding work of this human-born Savior, this male child who will be born. How will he save God's people? How will he undo what Adam did in the Garden of Eden? This second Adam, as Paul eventually begins to call Jesus. The one who undoes what this, the first Adam did. How will he do it? Well, Isaiah tells us in, in, in Isaiah 53 that he will do it by suffering. He will suffer on behalf of people. He will take the punishment that Adam and Adam's fallen race deserve. He will take it upon himself. And he will exchange his righteousness for their sin. And he will exchange his innocence for their guilt. And he will become sin for them. And he will take the punishment of God to bring them peace. He will absorb the wrath of God for them. 
That's why he had to be born into a human body. Because it was a human that had broken the original covenant with God in the Garden of Eden. And it was a human that had to come and obey the covenant on behalf of us and take the penalty of the broken covenant upon himself. A man had sinned. A man had to pay for sin. And so God said, I will become a man. And he ripped off his garments of holiness and of power. And he said, I will come. And I will become a man for them. And I will live holy for them. And I will die and suffer the punishment for them as a man. And he, be, and he came and he was a man of sorrows. And he was acquainted with grief. And he shed his blood for us to be free. This human born Savior. For unto us a child is born. And unto us. A son is given, he's a gift, he's been given to us. A little baby boy given to save us. This is the story of the gospel. Has there ever been a story like this? This is why the Bible calls it good news. It's incredible. When this story, as you see it unfold through scripture, if this thing gets into you, it will, in the very best sense of the term, it will ruin you for life. Hey? It will ruin you. Because nothing else will make sense anymore outside of this. Nothing else can outshine the glory of this. Money, power, sex, whatever. This is exceedingly glorious. It... it who needs notes when you have this? <laughs> so, not only will he be a human born man, that's the first point here, and the second is, is, is now coming, of the increase of his government, says Isaiah, verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over David's kingdom to order it, to order this kingdom. There was disorder in David's kingdom. It was falling apart in Isaiah's time. God had made a great promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. God makes a covenant with David. He says, upon your throne, your sons will sit on the throne of my covenant people for eternity. What? That's not the Bulgarian dynasty that has reigned for four and a half thousand years. That's not the Chinese, Japanese dynasty that's reigned for whatever it is, two and a half thousand years. We're talking about the promise, David, I will establish your throne for eternity and your sons will sit on it for eternity. That means a billion, billion, billion years from now, there will be a human born man who will be king and he will sit on a throne over a kingdom of God's people. A billion years from now. How can God make a promise? A billion, 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 eternity years from now. There will be a king sitting on your throne, David. It's the most remarkable promise God makes David in 2 Samuel chapter. How can that be? How can it be? Well, of the increase 
of his government and peace. There will be no end, says Isaiah. There will be no end. Upon the throne of who? Of David. To order it and establish it. This human-born Savior promised to Eve in the garden will come. Not only will He come through Abraham, not only will He be born as a man into the nation of Israel, but He will be from the line of David. Not just all of Abraham's seed, not just all of Isaac's seed, not all of Jacob's seed, the twelve sons, no, no. And not just from the tribe of Judah, which, Joseph, which um, Jacob prophesied at the end of chapter 49 of Genesis. Yes, it'll, it'll come from Judah, the king will, will come. It's narrowing, narrowing, narrowing through time, through the prophets, narrowing, narrowing. And now it's going to be through David that this human-born Savior comes. And he not only will be the Savior, but he will actually sit on the throne of David. He will be king. Colored in a bit more. And he will order and he will, he will bring order and he will bring um, a settling, a, an establishing of this kingdom. From that time forward, even for forever. So the passing of this throne from David to Solomon to Rehoboam to the next king, 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 and eventually, whoa, uh, under the sons of Josiah and then Zedekiah, it gets taken captive and the throne of, of, of David's throne is actually no longer even in existence. It looks like the promise has fallen to the ground when Nebuchadnezzar... Um, took Judah captive in, in 586 BC. It looked like it was all over. And in fact, for hundreds of years, that was the cry of the Jews. What has happened to the promise of David's throne? It's, it's, it's God. And today, you read Jewish um, literature. They can't make sense of it. They cannot make sense of how David's throne has not been re-established. Well, what does Isaiah say? From that time... When this child is born, the one who brings light to Galilee, from that time forward, even forever, the throne will be established. What does that mean? That means the passing of the throne from one son to another will stop when it gets to him. And he will sit in it forever. It's, it's all here. It's all there. The whole story. 700 years before the birth of Jesus. The, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, says Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah's looking at all this and then he, he, he catches a glimpse of the, of the zeal of God for this plan and for this human-born Savior. And he, and he realizes nothing is going to stop this. God is going to do this. And he has. He did it. He did it 2,000 years ago. And I want to talk about two benefits to this, but let's, let's wrap up the sort of story side of it by looking at Luke chapter 2, I think it is, the sort of famous Christmas text. This will be read all over the world, and pleasantly so, over the next few weeks. Um, Mary, verse 6 of chapter 2, she she gives birth to Jesus 
uh, verse 7, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. She laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, from the, from the earliest time of the birth of Jesus, we see part of the story means that this human-born Savior, who is mighty God, who will save His people, who will crush the serpent's head, who is the king, of Dave, uh, the king sitting on David's throne, the one who Israelites and the people of God should fall before and cower before, He will come in great humility. He's born in a, in a, in a filthy stable. He's laid in a feeding trough. And there were, in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. You see, that's what God had been doing for, for 4,000 years. He said, I'll put enmity between your seed, Satan, and her seed. And they're my flock. And I'm, and I'm going to be keeping watch over them. That's what he's been doing. And can I tell you this? That's what he's been doing to you. He's been keeping watch over you. You know that's true. Before I got saved, I, I could have been killed so many times doing stupid things. And, and other terrible things could have happened to me. And then throughout my life, there are many times where, where things could have gone very wrong. Just the other day, I, I, I had a, a near-fatal car accident. Near-fatal, near-car accident. The guy missed me like this, put his indicator on but didn't turn, so I just drove out straight in front of him. And, and by some miracle, miracle he, he didn't hit me. Everyone around just stopped and stared. The amazing thing was that it didn't even, it didn't even bother me. I just, I just said, thank you, Lord, and carried on. Because my, my life is in his hands. He has been keeping watch over me. Why does God choose shepherds to, to, to tell the gospel to first? I mean, why this ragtag bunch of, of misfits? And You know what? Because God is a shepherd. He uses that analogy throughout Scripture. David, King David, was a shepherd. God is a shepherd. And so he appears to shepherds, and, he, and, and they're watching their flocks. And he says, you think... You think this is amazing, you know, keeping watch over your flocks. Let me show you what I'm doing to keep watch over my flock. Come on, I want to show you something. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold... I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Yes, the nations of the earth will be blessed through what I'm about to show you. The blessing of Abraham has been born in a little stable. He says, for there is born to you this day in the city of David. One who is a savior, who is Christ. The anointed one. Christ means anointed one. The one who is anointed to be king over God's people. That's what it means. This is the one who will sit on David's throne. For unto us a child has now been 
born unto us. A son has now been given and the government and peace will be upon his shoulders and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. I bring you tidings of great joy. That's why this is so joyous. It is the fulfillment of a hundred thousands of years of prophecy come true. The king to sit on David's throne has been born. The one who will undo all the misery that Adam brought into this world has now been born. And suddenly there was angel upon angel, a multitude, heavenly angels, and a host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest glory to Him what He has done. And on earth, peace and goodwill between men. Our hearts can be changed. And people go to carol services at their children's school and they sing these hymns and they have no idea how great it is. It's great. It's awesome. What does a king do? A king brings a victory. That's what the king of David is. Psalm 110, the most quoted bit of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Psalm 110 says this. Come and sit at my right hand, says God the Father to His Son after the resurrection. Come and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now the New Testament speaks about several enemies that... Jesus as our King who leads us out in battle and gives us victory. A couple of enemies. I want to talk about two of them before I close. Number one, sin. I know you know this. You're, you're all Christians as far as I understand in the room. We know this, but we rejoice in this at Christmas time. That sin has been overcome by our King. It has been put under the feet of the one who died to take away sin. It is under His feet and he's crushed. I don't care how guilty you feel here this morning. I don't care what you did last night and you stumbled into and you feel guilty again of that thing that you have continually stumbling into. Yes, there's sanctification. Yes, God disciplines his children. But I want you to know you're forgiven. You're at peace with God through Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you're forgiven. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Sin is under the feet of Jesus. Satan will come and say, you have promised God that you will never get drunk again. You promised him you would not get drunk, and I got drunk. I had a little bit too much to drink last night. Satan will come and he'll say, you are disqualified. You are under the wrath of God again. The blessing of God is leaving you. You've done it this time. Satan, my sin is under the feet of my king. It's under his feet doesn't mean we don't change. We do. We do change. The Holy Spirit is given to us to transform us. And He will. He will. And you know what? When you've been born again, your heart wants to change. If God has taken out a heart of stone and He's put in a heart of flesh, that's what it is to be born again. Your very heart gets changed. You don't want to live in sin anymore. And yes, we stumble. And yes, we still struggle against the flesh. But your heart wants to change. Your heart wants to do what's right. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. This struggle is in you. I want you to know this morning you're forgiven. God's at peace with you. We have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, says Paul. 
we have peace with Him. God is at peace with you this morning. He loves you. He's watching out over, over you. You say, but my sin. No, no, your sin is under the feet of Jesus. He's your king. And he's a great king. He's a great king. He knows how to conquer his enemies. Oh, but I've sinned and there's this thing. No, 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 no. Jesus is a great king. Don't think that he's not strong enough to have died for your sin. Don't think that his blood is not powerful enough to have covered even that and even the sin you will commit again tomorrow. Because you will. No, it's forgiven already. Now, if you know me, you know I'm not the hyper-grace thing where sanctification is not important. If you know me, there's a balance to this. But this is true. Your sins, past, present, future, have all been forgiven. That is the scandal of the gospel. It's scandalous. That's why Paul has to deal with the objection. Well, should we sin? To make grace abound then. You know, if, if the scandal wasn't that great, Paul wouldn't have to ask that question. No, how should we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Our hearts have been changed. That's the answer. But you're forgiven. So there's victory over sin. Complete victory over sin. Complete victory over sin. Secondly, there's victory over our greatest enemy. And many times, people don't see this as an enemy. An enemy, demons, you know, principalities, powers, wicked people. You know, we think of, of, of enemies as, as, as persons. Well, actually, the greatest enemy, the Bible says, of man is death. Death is, is man's greatest enemy. Paul speaks at length about the, 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 de the, the enemy of death in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15 and 16. And he speaks of how the victory of Jesus marching out of that grave in victory was a victory over death itself. Death has been defeated. Death. Sitting with my mother-in-law's boyfriend last night, we were having dinner, and uh, for some reason he, he, he got onto the subject of um, un the uncertainty of life, anything can happen. Um, and I said to him, that's why it's so important to know where you're going when you die. I said, uh, he said, oh, but what, what's it going to be like there, you know? The Bible doesn't tell us what, what, what it's going to be like. And, you know, it's all this fancy, full dreams. So, you know, it's, it's less important knowing what it's going to be like in heaven. It's, that's less important than knowing you're going to be there. I said to him, you've got to be ready to die. And I leaned back in my chair and I, I looked at him. And I said, I'm ready. Ready to go. And it's a great feeling. And it is a great feeling. I'm ready to go. Paul says, I can stay and I can be fruitful or I can go and be with him. He says, it's actually better to go and be with him. But for your sake, I think God's going to keep me here a little bit longer. 
it's better to die. You know, what is the worst that can happen? You know, we worry about all these things. You know, worry about this, worry about that. Okay, just stop for a second. What's the worst that can happen? Well, I won't have any of this, and then that'll happen. And then, okay, now what's the worst? And then, well, this will happen, and then, and then this will be, and that's what's the worst. Okay, well, I'll die. Okay, great. Death has been defeated. Not only do you instantly pass into the presence of God, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, says Paul. Not only do you instantly enter perfection and joy in the presence of God, where all of your sin has been cast off with this, this thing, this thing here that causes all the trouble. You, you lay it aside. Death is a victory. You lay aside the thing that keeps you from God. It's laid aside. It's, it's rolled up and cast away. Good, good. And you're in the presence of God. But the Bible says there's coming a day when Jesus, the King, will return, riding a white horse through the clouds of heaven and with great glory, with a, a company of angels following him, and he will wrap up this world, and the dead in Christ will rise. I'm going to get a new body, and I'm going to live in a physical world like this one, but on steroids. An incredible new creation. And I'm going to live in a body that is what a body was originally meant to be. A glorious thing to interact with others with and to live and to achieve and to play a part in some kind of economy in heaven and, and have rewards and, and embrace you and love you like you ought to be loved. I can't love you like I ought to love you because I, I still live in a fallen body. On that day, I will love you like I'm meant to love you. And you will love me like you're meant to love me. What an amazing place we will live. Why? Because Jesus, our King, has defeated death. Death itself is under His feet. Death has lost its power. Where is your sting now, says Paul? Where, where, where is, where, you know, the sting of death is sin, the strength of sins in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's King. I think there's other victories we can see in this world, like healing. It's one of the benefits of the Davidic covenant. Jesus takes the throne of David. The enemies are put under his feet. One of the enemies is sickness. That's why Jesus comes into the world. He lives here for 33 years, and everywhere he goes, he heals the sick. Because he is the king of the coming kingdom, and in that kingdom there is no sickness. And so the kingdom is coming as he's healing. It's a sign that the king has come. That's what the healings are. The king has come. <laughs> Muhammad Ali used to have that shouted before. No. Jesus Christ. The king has come. <laughs> healed, 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 healed. And the gospel, and, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, he says. The king has come. Now that will perfectly be ours one day. This body will never get sick. It will never get tired. It will never be sad. He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. We will live in perfect health for all eternity. Perfect health. You'll be able to run faster than... What's his, what's his name? <laughs> yes, you said, but you'll, you'll run faster than him. You'll jump higher. You'll, you'll experience the invigoration of a physical body. The way a physical body is meant to invigorate. God loves bodies. Bodies are God's idea. And we're going to live in bodies for all eternity, but perfect bodies. I remember preaching the gospel 
in uh, Barry and Mill's old age home down there in, in Rosebank. And there's a, a woman there. She's 91, I think. And she's a, a thalidomide baby. You probably don't know what a thalidomide baby, but in the, in the 19, well, 1920s it would have been, there was this drug that they gave to pregnant women to stop nausea. And unfortunately, it had the most horrendous effects on the babies. And countless thousands of babies were born in that period of time while it was being used without limbs, without, I mean, massive deformity. So this woman, she's 91 years old, and um, she has no arms, no legs. She's sitting in a wheelchair. She's got this little stub at the end with one kind of toe thing. And you know what? That woman loves Jesus. She loves the Lord. And she has the nurses wheel her down to the Alzheimer's ward every week so that she can preach to the old ladies in the the Alzheimer's ward. She's using whatever she's got to serve this one who saved her. And I went there one morning and I preached on the resurrection. And I tell you what, she sat there with delight. She's going to run and jump and embrace. I think this can break into this realm. I think we can lay hands on the sick and see them healed. You know, Jesus said, pray, your kingdom come. We are allowed to pray that. We have permission to pray that. Let your kingdom come now. And part of that is, yes, the preaching of the gospel to the poor, but it also is the opening the eyes of the blind, the the setting liberty, those who are captive, that thing. So we can pray for the sick here this morning. Not everyone we pray for gets healed. That just doesn't work that way. The kingdom sometimes comes, the kingdom sometimes is still coming. And we don't get to decide which it is. But we have permission to ask. That's my theology of healing, by the way, if you want to, in a nutshell. And I think that's right. I think that's a biblical balance. Anyway, let me, let me stop there. If you want prayer for healing, you come up. If you want prayer for salvation, you come up. I'll pray for you. If you want prayer for any other benefit of the kingdom, If you want Christ the King to sound His trumpet over you this morning for something, you come. And we'll we'll pray. Let's pray together.